Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Tom Hopkinson of the Sunday Mirror and Daniel Storey of Football 365. Sad to say, we're just waiting for someone, anyone, to put Arsene Wenger out of his misery. But should he take all the blame for Arsenal's failure? True, he signed or nurtured these players, but they're using him as a human shield. How can the new manager, whoever he might be, trust them? Tom? Poor Arsene. I mean, what a week to be uh, in his shoes, you know, uh, from, from the start of it, losing the Carabao Cup final in, in just, you know, abject display, absolutely dismal. Uh, I was at the game then that followed the Manchester City Premier League defeat uh, and they were simply picked apart by a much better side, but a side who aren't just much better than Arsenal, much better than everyone. So we have to take that into account. Um, and I think Wenger was right. I think there is an unbelievable uh, amount of fragility in the side. The confidence is at perhaps the lowest ebb it's been uh, in, in the entire almost 22 years he's been there. Um, and the players need their fair share of the blame for that. You know, these are professional athletes. They go into work every day. It's up to them as a group to, to lift each other, to marshal each other, to give each other that boot up the backside they need uh, at the right time. Um, but I don't think, like I wouldn't ever put the blame solely on Arsene Wenger, I wouldn't ever put the blame solely on the players, because the board need to come into this as well, because it's a, it's a drip, drip effect all the way down to that dressing room. The board are the ones who agreed that Wenger should stay on for two more years when it was clear to absolutely everyone. And I've been one of his staunchest defenders. Uh, I felt after the, the first leg 5-1 defeat in the Champions League by Bayern Munich last year that it had gone beyond now anything that Wenger could do with the club. He couldn't take them any further uh, after taking them an incredible distance. Um, they gave him the new contract. He was so stubborn that he stayed at the club. So that was his fault as well. That was their fault. And the players just haven't reacted. So as a collective, Arsenal Football Club deserve all the blame that's coming their way at the moment. Mm, let's look at, at players, if we could, Daniel. Um, you know, we saw Chelsea you know, basically reinventing walking football in the Premier League mm. you know, at Manchester City. Uh, you know, frankly, some of those Arsenal players, and I take what you, you said, Tom, about you know, the collective responsibilities and blame, mm. but they were just going through the motions. Is this a modern trait of the player? What I do think is that if, if I think we possibly underestimate how much a difference, a very small difference in effort can make. You know, Arsenal are a better team than Brighton, they have better players, 
But even if Arsenal were at 95, 92% and Brighton are at their best, it, that accounts for that shortfall. And they, they, they clearly wanted it more. And in the, the biggest moments of the match, they wanted it more and they made it pay. I think it's a question of motivation. And I, I agree you have to call into players into question players who cannot self-motivate, who require a stable stage on which to perform anywhere above, you know, incompetent at the moment. Um, but I don't think we can underestimate just how much that uneven stage, that instability, how much of a difference that makes every day. If you're going into work every day and you know that not everyone is pulling in the same direction, and that's not just in the team, that's everyone above you as well, I think that makes a huge difference. I think that is the case outside of football, and I think it's certainly the case inside mm. football. Um, yes, Tom's absolutely right, of course, they, they should take blame, and there'll be some of them that get a huge shock when Arsene Wenger's replacement comes in, because they've, they've been on easy street for a long time, complacent, um, taking their wage for granted, perhaps. But yeah, I think it's a little bit too easy to, to purely blame them, simply because the club has created that that completely unstable structure that's a, you know that, that produces results like this. Mm, it's a lack of leadership, isn't it? Yeah. And are, are we seeing? I, I had a text exchange last night with a former pro who basically said the real leader, you know, the one who gets he gets at people in the dressing room, pins them up against the wall if they're not doing it. They're almost treated as a bit of a troublemaker in a club environment, and they're the ones who go. It's the people who are compliant and the politically correct, if you like. Is old school leadership now dead in football? No, I think there's still a place for it. I mean, it's you know not too long ago that we'd got the likes of John Terry and mm. Frank Lampard uh, and and Michael Ballack. You know, they they had a team full of leaders, and and I think if you you, you look at uh, the squad, that Chelsea squad, which did so well over the years. They they had the ability to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with every team on a technical level, but as the old Arsenal team did, the, the Tony Adams, the Keowns, the Bolds, they would also scrap you in the tunnel or scrap you out on the field if they needed to. Manchester United, when they were at their, their best winning the treble, you know, they had the likes of Roy Keane who, um, yes, technically unbelievable, but had even more heart about him. I think to pick up on, on Daniel's point, you know, in English football, we, we love technically gifted players, but the crowd really get up when they see people putting that extra little bit of effort in a sprint. And look, you, there's no need to waste sprints and, and play up to the crowd, but just showing them that there is that little bit more, there's that bit of steel and grit and tenacity, determination to want to win the game. That lifts them, that in turn lifts your teammates as well. And I think the only person in the current Arsenal uh, side who has got that about him is Jack Wilshere. And I, I think he's been let down by a lot of players who, who haven't got that in their attitude, they haven't got that in their makeup. But I think that is Arsene Wenger's issue. Um, I think in terms of once players cross the line, you know, he has, a, I used to write Jimmy Greaves' column uh, for, for three or four years for the Sunday people. And, and Jimmy would always go mad about managers shouting on the touchline because he'd say, you've got to do, they should be doing their job Monday to Friday. Uh, at the training ground and then the second the players cross the white line they have to take the responsibility and that's what I say about the whole responsibility with Arsenal Football Club I don't think Arsene Wenger's doing his job properly during the week uh, and nor are the players at the weekend or you know when the time is right for them to cross that line. Tom mentioned Steve Bold mm. now what does he do there apart from you know sit on his on his seat and gurn at people during a game You've got that defence which is falling to bits. Mm. Let's be honest. Peter Cech at least came out and put his hands up and said, look, that was my mistake. Mm -hmm. You've got Mustafi's not good enough. Koscielny has fallen off a cliff. What's happening with that defence? I think it's two things. Firstly, I think the, the coaching systems in place are clearly not fit for purpose. You know, the Arsenal are conceding 
a lot of different types of goals. They're conceding from open play, they're conceding because they're not keeping the right defensive line, they're conceding the, the set-piece goals they've conceded this season. We remember the FA Cup game against Nottingham Forest. Those, I mean, laughable concession of goals from, from set pieces. Um, so I, I, I don't think that's fit for purpose and, and Steve Bold has to take responsibility for that because he's in there and he knows Arsenal and he knows how to defend so he should be good enough to do that. Um, the other thing is I don't think there's enough competition for places. Now, we talk about Koscielny and Mustafi but behind, you know, Chambers played yesterday and he was out of favour for years as well as, you know, loaned out to Middlesbrough, wasn't considered fit for purpose. Obviously, Gabriel left because he wasn't considered good enough. Per Mertesacker is kind of the backup at the moment, and yet he's retiring at the end of the season. Rob Holding hasn't kicked on. There just isn't that competition for places at all at Arsenal in any position, but most obviously in centre-back, especially when they're playing three of them. Because, you know, this basically just Per Mertesacker waiting is the next cab off the rank, and he's retiring in three months. Mm. Uh, a mate of mine always says that they're sort of, the Arsenal players are the sort of boys that, as a parent, you'd want your daughter to bring home. And, and he's absolutely right, you know, and, and that isn't going to win you Premier League football matches. What will uh, they need? They're going to San Siro on Thursday. You've got Gattuso. Miracle. Yeah, they will. And it, it, I, I love Gattuso, I have to say, you know, all this thing, you, you know, you, you don't know about management until it smashes you in the teeth, which is exactly what's happening with, with Arsene Wenger at the moment. Are Arsenal going to capitulate again in that circumstance? Uh, yeah, it's also what Gattuso tried to do to Joe Jordan, if you remember. So that's one of, my, one of the most memorable occasions of covering football, that. But um, yeah, I mean, look, Arsenal, uh, it's, it's a really tough place to be going for them at the moment. I mean, it would be a tough place uh, at any stage. And, and let's not forget AC Milan haven't had the greatest of seasons. They've been a bit of a roller coaster, but I think they're, they're unbeaten in 12 now. And it just shows that the confidence levels they've got and that fighting spirit that Gattuso will undoubtedly have injected into that side. Uh, and, and that's... That, to me, is what Arsenal need. Whoever comes in as the next manager, it needs to be someone with that nastiness behind him as well. You know, someone who has been in and around teams that have played lovely football and can inject it into Arsenal. I just see them go into uh, the San Siro and, and it, it's, you know, in, in usual circumstances, you would be, as an Arsenal fan, you would be looking forward to this game, this incredible stadium, this, you know, it's a, a wonderful place to go and watch European football. But you'd be going there fearing the worst because the confidence, as I say, is, is just at absolute rock bottom. Mm. Who then takes over from Wenger, which it does seem inevitable. It might mm. be painful and drawn out over the summer, but it looks like he'll go. Mm. Who takes over? I think they'll go for the safe pair of hands. I think we saw with in, in, in different, you know, different circumstances, we saw with David Moyes at Manchester United that perhaps if you're following a, a dynasty, top-level experience, experience of managing those egos, experience of managing through seismic change at a big club will be the key. And I think they'll go for, for perhaps a Carlo Ancelotti, someone to, to tick them over. Um, ideally... What about Benitez, Rafa Benitez, in that situation? I think he would be Just interested. Just as a stopgap for like two years. Yeah, I mean, he is... He is another archetypal safe pair of hands. Um, I wonder with Benitez now, maybe whether his next job, he might prefer somewhere a little bit quieter, um, <laughs> given what's happened at Newcastle and given the ownership problems there. Um, but he, he, he does represent that safe pair of hands. He represents that someone that can, can take you through. It, it's become very difficult now, I think, to immediately go from one area to another area and, and do it successfully. Um, Manchester United show that, I think Arsenal will show that. So if you've got that stopgap, someone to see you through for a season or maybe even two seasons, I th I'm sure they would love to appoint a Mikel Arteta or, um, you know, two years ago we were talking about Patrick Vieira. Um, but 
I don't think it's the right time for them now. I think there's a lot more that needs sorting out above the manager's position to give that sort of coach the best chance. I, I, I you've got Cronky's billions and you've got his power. Who do you give? Yeah, I'd, I'd go for Simeone. Um, I do everything I can to get him out of Atletico Madrid. I, I, I love Ancelotti as a manager. I was fortunate enough to spend a bit of time with him. Um, uh, both at Paris, I went out to interview him a couple of times and spent a bit of time with him when he was at Chelsea as well. And... Um, Lovely man, uh, no ego about him. I know speaking to Chelsea players, he, he went into that dressing room and he he, he didn't. Uh, I think uh, Scolari went in and and it was uh, revolution rather mm. than evolution. Whereas Ancelotti went in and over the course of ten months, uh, I remember it was Joe Cole was saying he, he you know he didn't. He said no no we'll just keep everything how it is and he said we just didn't notice that everything changed within ten months until we were doing exactly what he wanted. But I, I don't think that's what Arsenal need right now. I think. Um, Graham Souness wrote a good column in the Sunday Times, as ever, um, this weekend, but on on the situation at Arsenal. And, and that whoever inherits that dressing room has got a major job on their hands. You know, the, the characters, as we've said, aren't there. And that's why I think Simeone um, going in, if they can maybe get him lined up now and, and say to him, look, right, who are the two characters who are going to come in? You're going to bring, you know, you're going to bring Diego Costa with you or someone like that, you know, someone who will really give this dressing room a lift and, and get it going because I, I think I think there may be five players short of a very good side but I think they're they're two characters short of a side that can start challenging for the Champions League again so I'd, I'd go Simeone every time. Mm. Do we also Daniel need to give Man City more credit here because basically over the last week what they've done is they've blown the minds mm. of players at Arsenal and Chelsea and the probability is that that will cost both of them a place in the top four. Yeah, the, it, it was interesting. This period was the one at the start of the season when the fixtures came out and we thought, well, there's a League Cup final, there's the Champions League games and they've got, they've got play Arsenal away and they play Chelsea at home. You think, well, this is, this is when the titles won and lost Manchester City. And they've almost become virtually meaningless games. You know, Sunday's game against Chelsea was, was a procession. Um, and that's as a result of them psychologically beating teams even before they're playing them now. And that's not just, that's not just smaller clubs. And that's, you know, that's elite clubs. It's interesting that they've struggled against smaller teams because they're, they're the teams that think we might as well have a go at them. We might, we've got absolutely nothing to lose. Whereas teams like Chelsea and Arsenal now, they realise that being dismantled by Manchester City looks bad on them. It, it, it embarrasses them. And they've beaten them before they start. Chelsea's players were happy, were happy to lose 1-0 with 15 minutes to go in a league game that could put them out of the Champions League because they're so scared about what Manchester City's attack can do and, and how well drilled they are and how organised they are to go from defence to attack. And yeah, it, it, it feels in the last week that City have laid down foundations for next season with how they've played because they didn't need to win those games as dominantly as they have and yet, mm. yet they've, they've done more than they needed to. Because with Conte, what do you make of Conte at the moment, Tom? Because, you know, he came out and basically said... You know, it'd be stupid to lose three or four nil. Well, you lose whatever happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, is he working I, his ticket? Yeah. Well, look, he's gone in the summer, um, and 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 we're what are we nine games away from from his deal? Nine Premier League games away from that happening. Um, I I think he's given up the fight, which is disappointing, given that he's exactly that sort of tenacious character that I was talking about. Um, 
he, I was at his press conference on Friday and he was he was so glowing, uh, as, as Daniel said, about Manchester City and not just about the way they're playing this season, but about what they're going to be like next season. The fact that the one thing is for sure that they are going to kick on. And it, there was there was a resignation, um, as there has been for, for weeks now and, and perhaps months with him, that, look, there's almost nothing. Last year was great. I came in and I was able to change the tactics, change the formations, and he, he deserves an incredible amount of credit for that. But when he didn't get the players he wanted to sign in the summer and again in January, he was almost saying, look, Pep, Pep's got everything he wanted. And yes, he's a great manager, but he's, the club are backing him. They're putting it together well. And, and I think that's, that's fed down to the players and to a group of players who, of course, have seen all this before uh, at Chelsea. When a manager comes in, he does very well. The board don't back him in the way that he wants to. He starts kicking off behind the scenes. The players know exactly what's coming. So it's almost like, well, look, we, we know we can't win the Premier League. We can win the Champions League, though. Um, take a lot to win the Champions League for them, but that's where we're going to put our priorities. And, and I think we saw that from the performance against Barcelona. But, yeah, to answer the question in a very long-winded <laughs> way, I'm, I'm disappointed that Conte's gone that far, but I think it's just that he's now... I think his mind's probably on his next job. Mm. If City don't win the Champions League, who does? I think the two Spanish teams, um, Real Madrid and Barcelona, are the only ones that can stop them in, in different ways. Um, Real Madrid will, will obviously rely on Ronaldo, their Champions League deity, um, if they're going to win it. And I, I do think they'll get past Paris Saint-Germain. Um, and they also have got into Manchester City's heads before, um, that semi-final second leg where we really thought Manchester City might kick on um, and do it and they fairly meek 1-0 defeat and went out of Europe and that was bitterly disappointing and that was that was when we saw the end of, of Manuel Pellegrini because it, it was completely giving up the fight. So I think Man I think Real Madrid are in their heads and I think Barcelona have got the football to beat them. Um, obviously, we know their talents, but um, the history there, the type of football they play, they, will, they are one club who will not be psychologically beaten by by Manchester City, they will be prepared to take them on at their own game and, and they've obviously got the quality to do that but I don't think Bayern Munich have got the quality, I don't think Juventus even if they get through have got the quality. The other the other team I'd say is is Liverpool because they've, they've, they're the only team that have really outclassed them in the league this season. Um, I know it was, a, it was a tight game but for periods of that game Liverpool were the best team in the country. Um, and we know their history with the Champions League, and we know Klopp's ability to get them up for you know for one big big matches. So yeah, they're the three, but I, I, I would have them as favourites. Mm. I've got a sneaking suspicion, no more than that, about PSG turning Real Madrid over. Although having said that, no Neymar, mm. and it looks like Mbappe might be struggling to be fit. Are Madrid vulnerable defensively? Um, yeah, I think they probably are. I mean, it's a tough call to, to make, you know, and, and particularly when, given the fact that, as you say, Neymar is missing and, and Mbappe might be struggling as well. So I, you're never going to write Madrid off in, in any game. Um, and, and I think PSG are still, I think they're just a little bit short um, of, of enough quality um, uh, to, to do it this time. So I'm, no, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to stick with Real Madrid that... Mm. Uh, that they'll, they'll see them off. Yeah, some speculation that, that Gareth Bale's going to be on the bench. Are we seeing the end of the Bale-Madrid era, do you think? I don't think he would like... He wants it to. And, and weirdly, I don't think Real Madrid want it that way either. I think they would love to have him doing what he's doing, which is starting a proportion of games and being an impact player off the bench. And Bale seems to be happy with that. Um, you know, he's won two Champions League titles and he maybe he thinks... 
this is fine. You know, I, I don't feel like I need to play every week anymore. Maybe he's waiting for Ronaldo's kind of era to, to end and then he'll step forward, although he'll be sort of 28, 29 by then himself. Um, but I, I think he's happy. I think we've heard so many stories of, you know, Bale to Manchester United or Bale back to Tottenham or Bale to wherever, that, and it's never materialised. And, and I think his agent would, would possibly quite like a move as well, one big more move. But Bale seems very, very settled in Madrid. Um, it's a shame that he's not starting every week because he's good enough to. Um, but if Zidane leaves in the summer, which I think he will, then Bale may well back himself to impress a new manager more than, more than you know, be in favour more than he is under Zidane. Mm. And you see Man United throwing a lot of money at him? Look, I, yeah, uh, but I, I agree with Daniel. I don't, I don't actually see why Gareth Bale would want to join Manchester United these days. Um, I think they're so, uh, so far short of what Real Madrid are at the moment. Um, I don't think they play the sort of football that he would enjoy these days, which perhaps you know, three years ago they were doing. Um, I mean, it's it's the obvious it's the obvious move for him if he were to come back to to England and, and back to the Premier League, uh, them or City. But again, look, they've got to match his wages. Um, are Manchester United willing to pay for a player who's had real injury problems over the years? Are they willing to throw that sort of money at him to make it work? Um, does he want the lifestyle back in in the northwest? Uh, compared with the lifestyle that he enjoys in Madrid, and you know, as, as Daniel says, you know, he's winning, he's winning Champions League trophies. It's it's mm. it's a hard thing to give up. Now, look, Real Madrid, if they decide he's he's leaving, then then he will have a decision to make, and um, you know, the, the top three clubs in England, top four clubs in England, will all have to have a go at him to to show the sort of ambition they've got. But for now, I I, I don't see him leaving. Mm. Let's look at his old club, Tottenham. Mm. Um, Really looking forward to the Juventus game. I thought the first game was fantastic. Mm. Um, what do Tottenham need to do to win? They need to play exactly as they did from 2-0 down in the first leg. They need to harry Juventus. They, they, they really got under the skin of, of Allegri's team. Um, Juventus were surprised by Tottenham, uh, how well they came back into the game. I think they thought, they suspected at 2-0, that they had mentally beaten Tottenham and that they, they could just see out the game and take a 2-0 or even a 2-1 lead and, and then they, I think they were surprised again at 2-1. I think they were surprised that Tottenham didn't think we've got away with one here if we go back to 2-1 we can take them back to Wembley and see what happens but that fight that Tottenham have is not dissimilar to Atletico Madrid I don't think and what Simeone's done with Madrid in, in convincing a team that they're never beaten um, which is extraordinary given the sort of Spursy cliche we, we, mm. we talk about with Tottenham traditionally. Um, so yeah they just need to do exactly the same. They will need to defend better than they did in the first leg because let's not forget Higuain missed a penalty at a crucial time and they, they could easily have been out of the tie at that point. Um, but they will back themselves to do that as well. Even without Toby Alderweireld, Davinson Sanchez and, and Eric Deer have played as centre-backs and it looks seamless again. Um, so no, I, I'm quietly confident that Tottenham will will beat Juventus. Mm. I've, I've got a little thing about Tottenham in the Champions League, uh, similar to yours about Liverpool, that I just think 1-11, to they, they can beat any team on their day. And I, I don't think over 38 games in a Premier League season, they've got the quality or, or the depth of quality mm. uh, to win the Premier League. But I think on these sort of one-off or two-off occasions of, of Champions League games, there's absolutely no reason why they can't go all the way uh, to the final. And, and you know, and then... Mm. Well, lottery, yeah, if, if they get through this time, you know, by definition, they've, be, they've beaten both finalists from last season anyway. Be, yeah. You were there on Saturday. Yeah. Um, that, were they almost going through the motions waiting for this game? Yeah, it was. It, it felt a little bit like before the Lord Mayor show, if you like. Um, I wouldn't want to say 
uh, people weren't trying to or, or trying to avoid injury or anything like that um, because they did it was just a very professional job from them um, I think they they played in fourth gear never needed to play in anything like sixth gear um, because Huddersfield came and put five men across the back line and then stuck one man in front of that back five and 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 Tottenham what Tottenham have become good at is is breaking teams down breaking the the sides down that that they traditionally struggled with um, I think Son has come out with a lot of credit again he's been playing very well on a bit 15 of a, goals 9 assists yeah and and I, I and and what really impressed me I I you know the the finish for the second goal I mean, the finish for the first goal was was very cute. Uh, you know, showed calmness, awareness to skip past the keeper, and 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 was very good. But the second goal, I actually felt a little bit bad when I saw it back on match of the day because I'd not given him the credit for the finish that he probably deserved when in my match report because, you know, it, it was bouncing awkwardly. Technically, he, he did everything right, and um, what a great pass from Harry Kane to pick him out as well. Great cross from him. Um, so I think I think things are coming together nicely for Spurs at the right time. They've been a, a club who. Um, and Kane scores goals, doesn't he? Traditionally, uh, has scored goals in the last uh, the end last three months of the season at a better rate mm. than he, he has done in uh, the early parts of the season. So it bodes well, and 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 they've got over this Wembley hoodoo. Um, I think it was West Ham in October. The EFL Cup game was the last time they lost at Wembley. Um, I don't think I think they're unbeaten this unbeaten, year. In unbeaten the in League, seventeen. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so again, it's it's it's. Look, we're at the business end now, aren't we? Uh, Daniel talked about the, this period for Manchester City and we're looking at Liverpool, Manchester United at the weekend or Manchester United, Liverpool. Um, and, and these games now are going to dictate where teams finish, who wins what. And, and Tottenham are really gathering momentum, I think, at the right time. Mm. Tom mentions Harry Kane, obvious Player of the Year candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, De Bruyne, um, Salah, yeah. Liverpool. Who would be your choice at the moment? I would, uh, my choice would be De Bruyne. Um, I'd, I'd also put David Silva in there. Um, it seems uh, churlish to just add f- more and more Manchester City players to that list. But well, I'll, so I'll put Sane in for next season. Yeah, fine. Yeah, it, well, it, but you could you could take your pick. You know, Sterling is Sterling is the overwhelming favourite for Young Player of the Year. De Bruyne is favourite for Player of the Year, and yet David Silva and Leroy Sane have both had the best seasons of their careers and had the, probably had the best seasons they will ever have in their careers. Sane's at another level yeah, now. Absolutely, and he's 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 far and away second favourite to be Young Player of the Year, which is extraordinary. Um, so yeah, I say it feels a bit. Um, Overblown to keep adding Manchester City players to that list, but they've been so dominant. And, and and David Silva is, you know, you speak to any Manchester City fan, and they love Kevin De Bruyne. Of course they do. They love what Sergio Gros has done. They love Zabaleta, and they love Vincent Kompany's leadership. But Silva is, to them, the best player they've ever had. Um, certainly to a, you know the generation of forty and below, the best player they've seen at the club. Um, and I think he's had his best ever season. I think we're kind of underrating it almost because everyone else is doing so many beautiful things in that team as well. When, when Silva's having his best ever season, it, it's some season as well because <laughs> yeah. it's, been, it's been absolutely superb. I, I, I love, I agree with what you're saying about Sane. I mean, it's, it's like watching a racehorse, you know, thoroughbred. Um, I mean, just, you know, I'm gushing about his physique, but he's, he's just, he's almost the perfect stature and build of a footballer, you know, uh, and, and when he's in full flow, it's it's a remarkable you know athleticism to watch and and I think we'll we should all really appreciate just how good mm. he is and how good he's going to become. But I I think I think it's a, a race between two players for footballer of the year this year. I think Mo Salah has to be in that race, but I still don't think, despite him scoring a ridiculous number of goals this year, I still don't think he's done quite enough to get past De Bruyne, who has just been sensational from the moment the season started. Mm. Well, what Salah has done is, was it 32 goals, mm. more than Suarez ever did? Yeah. Uh, 
I can see him taking Manchester United apart on Saturday. That game, is it probably going to be the last example of real tribal rivalry you've got in English football? Um, I think outside of the, the very local derbies, you know, I'm sure Aston Villa and Birmingham and Forest and Derby and Sheffield United and Sheffield Wednesday fans would all push the case of their own local derby. But yes, there is, there is absolute hatred there. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. And there's also, which is great to see, something genuinely rivaling, you know, riding on the game because there's now five-point gap between fourth and fifth and there's a, a huge gap at the top. So finishing second or third, Manchester United and Liverpool matters to them. Finishing ahead of their, local, their, their rivals matters to them. So there is something on the game, which is great because... The big games are left for the rest of the season. There's, there's maybe not as much. Um, and I agree with you. I think Salah could... It's a cliche, but the first goal is going to be huge because we saw, we've seen Mourinho's Manchester United before. They, they score the first goal of the game. They can very easily grind out results. Um, and they did so against, you know, did so against Chelsea. Um, but if Liverpool score and score early and they, they score a huge number of goals between the 15th, 16th and 30th minute, basically, Liverpool, they don't score early on. Teams think, well, we've survived an early onslaught. Teams push out a bit and Liverpool hit them on the counter. And they've done it time and time again this season. And if they do that, then the, you know, the atmosphere at Old Trafford is going to be something to behold. Toxic, yeah. well, what's, been, what's been lovely about it as well is you know what they're going to do. In, in, in respect of you know how they're going to try to hit you. Mm. But the way they go about it is still catching teams on, on, on the hop. And what, what I love about Salah, I, I, uh, you and I and John Cross were sitting on this sofa a few months ago and I, you know, I flippantly said if he could score, if he, he you know, could convert all the chances he, mm. he'd been given, I mean, he'd be on 50 goals this season yeah. because I remember seeing him early on and, and he'd come from Fiorentina and Rome where he'd got this incredible record, I think, of scoring a goal every two games. And we all dismissed it. Oh, look, that's just a Serie A. No, no chance he's going to do it in the Premier League. And, and he's completely proved us wrong. And, it, and it's, been, it's been a joy to, to be proved wrong by him. And I, I just, I hope that next season he can start converting one or two of the chances that he misses because then we're talking about a player who is at a very, very good level now going on to... Well, we're getting 60 goals in Stratosphere. <laughs> Dean territory yeah. then, wouldn't it? But, but you know, all, all joking aside, that there is no reason why he, he could easily have had 40 goals this season with some of the very, very good chances he has missed. And, and when you see some of the goals he's scored, it's incredible now that he missed those chances because he's such a good player. He's, he's almost... Dare we say the complete striker at the moment, and, and without actually being a striker as well, as being someone who drifts around. And I mean, he's, yeah, he's been incredible. And, and um, uh, as I say, it's, it's it's only taken De Bruyne being sensational uh, for for him to pip him to the Player mm. of the Year award for me. So with Salah, you've got good recruitment number one. Yep. You've got good management and coaching number two. Let's look at another player who benefits in both those categories: Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. He could quite easily have been run over in the car crash that is Arsenal at the moment. Mm -hmm. Could be on a bench there. Instead, over a couple of months, he's really grown into that role and probably will get himself back in the England squad. Yeah, and I was wrong about him. I, I thought it was a, the first two months at Liverpool, he wasn't starting games. He has been fortunate that Adam Lallana's been injured for a long time and Jorginho van alden has been injured on occasion. So that's afforded him the starts in central midfield that he he wanted but also he needs because no one else is going to play in that front three if they're all fit um but yeah he's completely proved me wrong and he he it's a very simple thing he's enjoying his football he's enjoying the club he's playing at he, every liverpool player you talk to 
mentions Jurgen Klopp within about five seconds and says he lets us play, he lets us enjoy our football, he lets us have a laugh, he lets us do what we want, but in a controlled way in training, and then we just take that on the pitch. Uh, and that's what most Hammond Salah's doing, and that's what Oxlade Chamberlain's doing. But he is, we always knew he was a confidence player. We always knew that when the chips were down, he struggled to impress on games and he struggled to grab games. He's not a leader, by example, that's not his personality. But when, the, you know, when things are going well, um, he was man of the match at the weekend. He, he, you know, the first half, the front three were struggling to find space. Newcastle were under Benitez, were organised and were sitting deep. And it was Oxlade-Chamberlain that unlocked the door, um, which is something he, he, he simply didn't do in two years at Arsenal, or the last two years at Arsenal, really. I, I don't think we should rush to judgment you know, on Oxlade-Chamberlain, because just a, two or three months ago we were saying he was awful. <laughs> now we're saying he's the best player in England. And I, I, You're I, saying I, we don't have perspective. I, I, I just, I just don't, I don't think he's either of those two things. No. I don't think he was rubbish. I think he was playing poorly, but you, know, you have to afford that to someone who's just made a move away from a club that they've been at for years and years and gone to a new city. And you know, We don't mm -hmm. know what was going on in the background, whether he was stuck in some hotel that it wasn't great, whether yeah. he'd found... You know, all these things need to be taken into consideration. Maybe he's he just only, needs to be loved. He's only had a... Yeah, and, and he's earning that love now, but I think we, I, I, the talent he's got, I, I want to see him doing that consistently, being seven out of ten every game over the course of a season for Liverpool rather than four one week or four for a couple of weeks and then nine mm. for a couple of weeks and then we're, we're changing. I, I, think, I think he's got a long way to go still, but, but I think he has the ability to, to become a good Liverpool player. Mm. Is another mark of Klopp's influence the way defensively they're beginning to be shored up? You've got the confidence that's come with Virgin van Dijk, mm -hmm. Andy Robertson looks like a real catalyst at left back, and even Loris Karius is making a few saves. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they 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 look they look transformed as we thought they would be. Um, it wasn't just, and Klopp was keen to stress this. It wasn't just Virgil Van Dijk's ability as a defender. Um, it was his leadership and it was his organisation, and they immediately look more organised. They are not perfect by any means, and there are clubs in the Champions League and Premier League who will still look at Liverpool and think. They've got periods of 20 minutes where they will capitulate here and concede two or three goals, perhaps. Um, but yeah, he's clearly got a settled team now. Um, Joel Matip didn't even play at the weekend, so they've, they've, they've got more strength in depth. And you're right, Andy Robertson's been a revelation. He has been um, one of their standout players of the second half of the season, and, and he was nowhere at the start of the season. Um, He's got he's a, he's a lovely story in that he was you know released as a kid from Celtic and went down to the Queen of the South, I think, and played and. He's worked his way back up and you can see that in his game. You can see his ap attitude to take the chance he's now being given. And he's, he's light years away from Alberto Moreno defensively. Um, and, and the young players at Liverpool as well, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Alexander Joe Gomez, more than Arsenal, the complete opposite Arsenal, it feels like everyone is pointing in the right direction and Klopp's leading them. Whereas exactly the opposite Arsenal, everyone's pointing in the wrong direction and Wenger's at the back. Um, and you can just see it in every performance. Yeah, Naby Keita coming in, you know, he's, he's not doing very well, frankly, for, mm. for Leipzig at the moment. Probably they should have just given him yeah. to Liverpool in January. With that addition in central midfield, is that the big piece of the jigsaw for a championship potential team? Well, it, it's not on current form. I mean, if you'd have asked us this question yeah. a year ago, we'd have said it, it'll be a great addition. But I, I, I struggle to get my head around that 
uh, the idea of why you'd sign someone and then loan him back for a year and, and, and announce it and confirm it. And it just, you know, it just seems that, you know, you, you're almost, you've got a foot in two camps then, haven't you? And mm. he's he's not wanting to go into games, a little bit like we said with Tottenham, you know, where they had one eye on the Juventus game at the weekend. Is, is Naby Keita going to want to be putting his foot into a challenge you know, that, that's maybe 30, 70 against him and thinking, well, I don't want to break my leg because then when I move to Liverpool in the summer, I'm, you know, I've still got so much work to do. And, and, and it just isn't going to work for all parties. So, I, I, I think, on form, on paper, no, well, he looks on, the player yeah, that they paper, need. On paper, yes. Absolutely, he's he's box to box. Um, he'll, he'll, you know, that that old the engine room will will definitely be uh, ramped up with him in it. But on current form, I don't think he's going to make too much difference to them. I, you know, again, hopefully he'll prove me wrong. And, and once he's got his head right, once he's got his move here, hopefully settles into it a little mm. bit quicker than Oxlade Chamberlain did. But I, I just think it's a strange deal all round the way they've conducted that. Mm. Let's look across the city, Daniel, to Everton. <laughs> where, of course, it's not Sam Allardyce's fault, fault <laughs> according to Sam Allardyce, anyway. Um, what do you make of what's going on there? I think it's a, a shambles. Um, and I think it's a very predictable shambles as well. And if you spoke to any Everton fan, a large percentage of Everton fans on the day Sam Allardyce was appointed, they'd have said, this is what will happen. Um, he, he was appointed with Everton in big trouble. It was announced in big trouble. At the time he took over the team, they were 13th in the Premier League and five points above the bottom three. So they were appointing a firefighter when there was no fire. And... This was Allardyce's big chance to kind of put an icing on his club career. He'd always, always had this opinion of himself that he deserved bigger jobs. He was given a job with England and, and mucked it up for personal, you know, from a personal point of view. And he's been given a big job at Everton and he's mucked it up from a professional point of view. Because um, there, was a, there was a statistic that I think was tweeted the other day saying they're, they're 20th for shots since he took over in the Premier League, the 20th for chances created, the 20th for shots on target, there's something like 16th for the number of passes they're making, they're just playing direct football. They were abysmal against Burnley, even when they had the lead, so it's not even as if goals are giving them confidence. And, and by all accounts, by everyone I speak to, the Everton players cannot wait for Sam Allardyce to leave. Um, he was always seen as a short-term option, and we understood that he might leave in the summer because that was why he was trying to negotiate a longer contract in the first place because he realised that if he got, you know, he was made redundant in the summer then he would have a bigger payoff and that looks to be the case. It's very hard to convince a group of players who know they're going to be here longer than you are that your way is the right way and, and, and even saying that I don't think his way is the right way because I don't, I don't think his football works at Everton. That, that's not Everton fans being entitled or you know, having big airs and graces about themselves. That's just them wanting a group of players to play in the way that they think they can play. And Everton are not built with their huge collection of number 10s. They're not built to launch it down the channels to, to Umani Ass. Mm. <laughs> That's what well, but, but I, I, I find it a little bit disappointing because I was hoping that the Sam Allardyce of Bolton later years, mm. you know, who got the performance out of Fiero, the Duke AFs, the Akotchas, I was hoping that with an apparently better group of players, and I, I think... Uh, Everton have got some very good players and I thought Walcott was a great addition for them uh, and, and, and for Sam personally mm. I thought he'd be a great addition because he would be the one or, you know the stepping stone to Sam saying look I can play this open wide attacking football that, that people have not believed in me and, and uh, so I'm, I'm disappointed really that in, in Sam that it hasn't worked out and he hasn't been able to make it work out but I also think it goes back to show that was Ronald Koeman doing a particularly bad job in the first place, mm. or or is there is there some bigger problem at the club? Mm, the concept of, of shame or embarrassment in football is pretty loose. <laughs> uh, can Everton go back for Marco Silva with a straight face? I think they can, uh, purely because he's now out of a job. 
Um, and Marco Silva is a, is a man who has shown, and a manager who's shown that he can have a short-term positive impact. And if he goes into Everton and has that short-term positive impact, people will very quickly forget about the last six months. We've seen at Swansea City that Carlos Carvajal has gone into a club and transformed them, having failed in his last job in the, at Sheffield Wednesday. Mm. So just because Marcus, it didn't end well for Marco Silva at Watford and, and Everton had... You know, had a role in that as well. That doesn't mean that it, he can't now be going be successful at Goodison. I think Everton fans, particularly given what's happened with Sam Allardyce, will be open to anyone who has an, a, a reputation of attractive, expansive football. So I don't think I don't think I, I, I see no reason why they can't go back in from in the summer. Whether they will or not is a different matter because appointing a manager in the summer is a lot different to appointing a manager in November or December. There's suddenly a huge, huge collection of coaches and agents of managers who will say, my guy quite fancies this gig as well. And, and Everton is a big job and it's a team that, big as you job. say, they've got good players and they've seriously underperformed. And actually, that's quite attractive to a manager, I think. If you can come in and have a quick win and suddenly expand your reputation, I think there'll be a, a, a heck of a lot of CVs going in for that Everton job. And, and Marcus Silva might now find that he's just missed out on his timing because I think there'll be there will be bigger name managers than him go for it. Yeah, I wonder what Everton, I know they played their own part in it, but I wonder what they made of everything that went on at Watford after he'd been refused permission to speak to Everton. Uh, you know, whether they mm. would look at that and think, you know, he's obviously... Uh, I'm told he told three players that they were going to come with him. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with being ambitious. Every, everyone, you know, everyone who is operating at that level of football has, has got an ambition um, and a work ethic and a desire to get to the top uh, else they wouldn't be there but I, I think it, it went on for so long and then dropped off mm. so quickly that you know if you were Farhad Mashiri would you be looking at Silver thinking well you know what if he does a good job here over the next year year and a half and then all of a sudden somebody else a bigger club flutters their eyelashes at him we're going to be in exactly the same position and, and what Everton needs now is stability and and I, I wonder whether Marco Silva will give them that. Mm. It's so easy to make the wrong decision in the manager, isn't it? You, know, you look at West Brom and Alan Pardew. Yeah, I, I, I don't think West Brom had an awful lot of choice but to go down that route. I think they saw his recent history and his, you know, his long-term reputation of this. You know, he was the, the managerial bounce manager. Uh, he isn't a firefighter. He isn't a shore up the defence. Uh, but actually, West Brom weren't conceding a huge number of goals because they had Tony Pulis in charge beforehand. So they saw, what they saw is a manager who could keep what they had working reasonably well and make them more expansive with the team they've got. And, and, and it's worked awfully. Um, in Pardew's defence, and I don't normally say that, um, there are some severe structural problems at West Brom. Um, Alar Arsenal from the hierarchy down. They've already sacked a chief executive and a chairman, and um, there are big changes that need to happen to that club. But Alan Pardew has wasted his last chance because he, he could consider, you know, he was quite lucky to get a Premier League job after the debacle at Crystal Palace and the long term decline he oversaw there. And yeah, he's wasted that chance. And, and when you've got things like ill discipline off the field and a manager who's unable to control that, it, it doesn't say an awful lot for his personality. Mm. I, I think a lot of us looked at Pardew's appointment, though, and, and probably agreed with it. And I think it was what West Brom fans asked for, in a way, uh, that whole be careful what you ask for cliche. Um, well, it's it, anyone but Tony Pulis. Well, yeah, it, it was. And, and, and the, the problem that, that Pulis had was he almost bought, to, over the summer and over the you know, last couple of windows, too many footballers for, for the style that he 
that, that's always served him so well. And I, I don't, I'm not saying that as a negative. Tony Pulis has been an incredibly effective Premier League manager and, and his, his system has worked very well. But they, they signed these footballers. So I actually thought Pardew coming in, someone who perhaps has a reputation for playing more expansive football, you know, we know he's a streaky manager, but but I thought he would come in and, and get a lot more out of uh, that West Brom team. So I actually, I've got a degree of sympathy for him uh, over over there because I just think, I think he has been let down by the players. Mm. A few questions from the listeners and the viewers. Um, start, Daniel, if I may. Mm. Uh, um, uh, Ely from Mountain View, California. If PSG are to sack Emery, if they go out of the Champions League, would Wenger be best suited for all parties after the Qatari owners failed to land him in the past? No, I think that ship sailed. Um, I, I, don't, I think Wenger's been at Arsenal so long that he's, he's more of an Arsenal manager than a football manager now. Uh, I think he would struggle now to, to, to replicate what he did in his USP at Arsenal again. Um, and therefore, I think that chips away at the marble of what made him great anyway. So no, I think PSG will go, they would go for, I think they would try and get Diego Simeone. Um, and if they wanted a more expansive manager, then Jose Mourinho is the name that always gets mentioned. Um, with is that expense expansive or expensive? Uh, both, as it happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I I think Mourinho is their answer in that they've always wanted a big name. And the problem with Emery has be has never been his football as such. It's been his personality because they've got so many personalities in that dressing room. And for all Mourinho's faults um, stylistically at Manchester United, he is the manager who you'd look to in terms of ego managing. Um, he's the strongest personality in football management. Leading on uh, to that, um, Tom, Nick from Manchester, what positions do United need to address in the summer to challenge for the title next season? Um, I think they need to try to sign just about every Manchester City player. It was always Mark Hughes' tactic, wasn't he, when he was at City, when they were bringing them up, was sign, if you sign a good player from a rival, it's the best option because not only are you getting a good player, you're weakening a rival. Um, look, I think United um, have, have, I think there are a lot of positions. I think the only position you would say um, that they are 100% solid in is, is the goalkeeper. And, and I think the rest of them, um, I think that they can improve all over the field. I think, I think in Pogba they've got a player who uh, is, is an incredible talent, potentially, um, and, and I'm still waiting for him to get back to the form that he showed he could, uh, he, he could recapture at the start of the season. And I think Lukaku is, is perhaps, you know, look, I think, I know he's had a lot of stick over uh, the campaign, but he still scored 22 goals and, and that's not a bad return with, you know, nine, ten games left to go. Um, so I think, I think, the spine is there, but they, they need those positions in and around them, strengthening and, and every single one of them, particularly the defence. You can get lost in the shadows at Old Trafford, can't you? The shadows of the statues even, you know. What about Rashford? Is he in danger of being marginalised there? Yeah, I think he is. I think he's already being marginalised. It's interesting to hear Jose Mourinho uh, talk him up uh, in the last couple of days, and that's generally a Mourinho tactic when he's noticed and noted that um, he's not getting minutes. Um, he's not started a league game since Boxing Day and he's, yeah, he, he is being marginalised and he must be worried about his first team place. Um, the defenders of, of the situation, and it is generally Manchester United fans, and I can see why they want to defend the situation because they want everything to be OK, but they also want Marcus Rashford in the team. They say, well, it's fine, he's, he's 20 years old, he can have a break. But Marcus Rashford wants to be playing football every week. Um, and England wants Marcus Rashford to be playing football I wish they'd sent him out on loan, Rashford, this yeah. year. I wish he'd gone to a Newcastle yeah. somewhere that he'd play, mm. play games week in, week out. 
Charles Davis asks, what are, if any, potential issues or factors that could derail City from dominating over the next few seasons? There are none. Simple. Uh, Pep Guardiola leaving, um, I, I think, is one. But, you know, look, the infrastructure is in place. Um, if they're bright at Manchester City and all the evidence points to the fact that they are, uh, then Mikel Arteta is being groomed. Patrick Vieira is being groomed to take over, um, learning his trade, of course, mm. uh, out of the country. But, um, yeah, I, I, I just... Uh, unless financial rules are changed, um, and unless Guardiola decides in the next three or four weeks that he's, he's going in the summer, then I, I, I think the writing's on the wall for everyone. OK. And a final one from Matthew Clark. Um, leaving Arsenal aside... How good a job has Chris Hewton done at Brighton? Unity across the club and a genuinely decent man. Yeah, I'm, I'm not actually surprised he's not been widely praised, partly because that's not really in his character. He's not a shouter, he's not a self-promoter. But also, until, the, until I think 24th of February, Brighton had not won two games in a row this season. They've kind of bobbed along, they've beaten bottom half teams and, and managers always get praised when they beat a top six team. And this, this weekend was the first time they've beaten a top six team. But they shouldn't be where they are anyway. <laughs> you know, they're a club, they are a club off the field that has Premier League ambitions and they are a Premier League club off the field. But the team they have, if you look at that team, is not a top half Premier League team, which is what they are now. Um, he's done a fantastic job. But there will be, for all everyone says, why is Hute not getting praised? Why is Chris Hute not getting all these plaudits? Chris Hute won't care. That's not how he operates. That's not his personality. He is more than, as long as Brighton fans are happy and Brighton players are happy, He's happy. Apart from Norwich, he always leaves clubs better than when he finds them, and that's all you can ask for. That's true. So as a final point, we haven't got much time. Um, on management, are we seeing now the changing of the old guard? You've got Allardyce under pressure, David Moyes under pressure because West Ham basically sold the shirts at the weekend. Uh, you've got Pardew, who is going to be associated with taking West Brom down. Are we at that time now where there's, things are going to change? Um... I don't think we. I don't think we're quite there. I think look, they're, they're, you're talking about people who've been around the game for a long time. But I, I mean, it depends whether you see Mourinho as the old guard and whether you see Guardiola as the old guard and Conte as the old guard. You know, I, I, I think there's still a bit of life left in the old dogs yet. Mm. I think the, the interesting thing this season is with what Carvajal's done at Swansea. There's always been a bit of a mis, you know a bit of a, an accusation that Premier League clubs don't look to the don't look below, they always look abroad. Or, and I know Carvalho's a foreign manager, but he came from a, a failure at a championship club and has flourished. It will be interesting to see if more clubs next season decide to risk a championship manager coming up, especially with how the promoted clubs have done, um, Hewton in particular. I think they should. The magic roundabout has finally broken down, and I think that can only be a good thing. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.